bionic zit splitter Breakneck speeds, we drown ten pints of bitter We lean all day and some say they ain't productive Could that depend upon the demon that you're stuck with? Cause right now, I see clearer than most I sit here contented with this cheese on toast I feel the pain of a third world famine Said wait, we count them blessings and keep jamming Tism, scumbag, scum of the earth His worth was nil until he gained the skill of tongues From 15 years young Hey everyone, welcome to EXO episode 8. I just went to a bar and got drunk, which is beginning to become a late motif of this show. Found out one of Matt's friends is moving to Vancouver, and one of his other friends already lived there. It was a, a group of us, and uh, a lot of Vancouver talk. Who kind of makes me want to move anywhere except New York because it's shitty and I'm sorry about that New Yorkers but it's terrible and there's nothing I can do about that it's not my fault but it's a terrible town and you're wrong if you don't think so Travel over ocean, land and sea Face enough stress and difficulty Flung back from the brink, whining kinda stink We don't give a frig about what them fools think This episode is, uh, speaking of New York, about New York Indirectly, it's about Tracy Morgan Who you may know from Saturday Night Live Or as Tracy Jordan on 30 Rock He just did an interview on NPR This show called Fresh Air talking about his upbringing in this neighborhood in Brooklyn called Bed-Stuy, which I believe is short for Bedford Stuyvesant. I could be wrong, but everyone calls it Bed-Stuy. I, as may be obvious from this show, I value when people are honest about their life, even if it means being perceived as weak or perceived as soft. I don't buy it anymore when people just act tough and people act cool about everything. It's it's fake. It's phony. It might have been cool back in the day, in the 50s, when you only had like the occasional movie and you go watch John Wayne be a badass and everyone loves it. But this is a different time. So... When you get these people that are just, yo, I'm Joe Tough guy, doesn't ring true. And that's what this interview kind of did for me, is not what you would expect from Tracy Morgan. He's a Saturday Night Live guy, a 30 Rock guy. He's funny, you know? You don't expect him to be honest. And I kind of get the sense from this interview that a lot of times he doesn't get into things about his life. He just put out an autobiography and kind of gets into really the day-to-day grind of his life. And it's one of those things I never felt like I could truly understand before. I mean, you see movies about, like, the hood, you know? You see how, like, poor black kids grow up. Or, I guess, Mexican kids too. Spanish kids, like, ethnic kids in general. In New York. Anywhere, I guess, big, but New York is the granddaddy of them. And, I mean, I come from pristine Canada. You know, I come from a fucking postcard. I live in a place that is glacier clean, you know? Whereas New York, if you ever saw that movie Seven, remember the first kill? The really fat guy? Kevin Spacey made him eat soup, then kicked him in the stomach till his stomach fucking ruptured? That's what the New York subways look like. They're 
Just the walls are literally covered in greasy scum at some stops. And don't tell me that isn't true, you fucking New Yorkers. I know you have an occasional stop. I know you got that neighborhood in Brooklyn. What's that called? Park Slope. You got one nice place. I've seen it. The rest of it is a hell hole. And I noticed that right away the first time I visited New York by myself. I took pictures. I was like, good lord, look at this. It's like that dude's kitchen at seven. Holy fuck. Like a funny joke. I didn't get it. If you've only been there for a week, you're not going to get it. You know, I thought, I just somehow thought when I moved there for real, it just wasn't going to be that way. Thought it was going to, I don't know what I thought. Just, it's unreal. People can't live like that. That's not life. That's fucking insane. Rats everywhere. I have a friend named Amy who lives in Halifax. She was in New York. She was there, you know, for the week and didn't want to ride the subways by herself. And I mean, I had nothing else to do. I don't have a job. So I was like, yeah, that's cool, man. I'll ride with you. We were going to Manhattan to a hostel. We turned this corner and there's a sleeping homeless guy and then a rat runs across him. It's like it was a movie set. Like they're waiting for us. Like, okay, they're turning the corner. Three, two, one, release the rat. You know, like, holy shit, New York. Actually, on that trip home, we got lost and we stopped in a bodega, asked a guy how to get to where we were going. He uh, let us use his phone. Very helpful. New Yorkers are very friendly, very helpful people. This idea that they're just rude is really not true. They're very nice. I got nothing against New Yorkers. In fact, I really, I don't know. Yeah, New Yorkers are great, but New York is awful. You live in a garbage pit, okay? I'm sorry, you live in a shithole. I shouldn't even bring it up, you know? If you don't see it, then good. How else could you survive? That's a survival instinct. But it's awful. It's just you don't know what it's like to live somewhere nice. So I always kind of knew this stereotype of New York. Or like, uh, you see the Welcome to the Jungle video. I guess that's L.A. But, you know, you see broken windows and graffiti everywhere and gunshots and garbage and I thought that's what all big cities were and it just terrified me I moved to Vancouver I was like oh man you know this is gonna be tough this is gonna be some hard shit this is gonna be hardcore and it wasn't it was gorgeous it was a beautiful city and if I had moved straight to New York I would have just thought well hey New York's kind of fucked but whatever you know this is how a city is and I think I would have liked it better I would have just accepted that You know, if I want to live in the big city, this is what I need to put up with. But since then, I've been to Vancouver. I've been to Montreal. Again, these are glacier fucking scrubbed wastelands of Canada, but they're not like that. They're a tenth of the size, to be fair, but they're not like New York. So this neighborhood, Bedford, that Tracy Morgan grew up in, 
The neighborhood next to that is called Bushwick, and I dated a girl from Bushwick. I spent a lot of time in Bushwick. I went there all the time to visit her. Apparently, Jay-Z is named after the JMZ line of the subway that cuts through Brooklyn, the J and the Z. I took that fucking train so many times to go out to visit this girl. I spent a lot of time in her nightmare of a neighborhood, and I remember her mentioning to me at one point that it bordered Bed-Stuy, and I was like, are you fucking, what are you talking about? The neighborhood is called Bed-Stuy? I didn't realize it was an abbreviation at that point, but like, could you think of a worse name? That's like a cartoon name for a shitty place. Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And there were times, I remember one day in specific, I got off the subway, got off the J-line, and I was listening to a podcast, and it wasn't quite over yet, so I diverged. Instead of walking straight to her place, I just started wandering, and I wandered into Bed-Stuy because it was the next neighborhood over. And, I mean, I felt out of place. I am a middle-class white dude from Canada, you know? I don't belong there. I do feel like, I mean, it's not so far from there as you get to Williamsburg and the hipsters and the skinny white boys with their skinny jeans and their fucking 80s retro t-shirts that don't look so different from me, but I didn't have a hard life, but I just don't feel like I'm a phony like those fucking idiots, but I still did not fit at all in Bed-Stuy. Not at all. poor housing, poor people. The JMZ is one of the few lines in New York that runs above ground instead of below ground. So they have these pillars that are like grating, graded pillars, you know, that hold up the subway line. And they were full of garbage. People, I mean, I guess that's a step up from just tossing your garbage on the fucking ground, but they filled up the lattice work of these things with trash, with McDonald's wrappers and stuff. There's garbage everywhere. The joke I used to make was like, it's like there's a garbage snail, and at night he just slowly crawls across the streets and just drops garbage everywhere. And then there's like the superhero that fights him, who is a guy who shoots a bazooka that just fires garbage bags full of garbage at the garbage snail. Like, that's just how it seems. It just seems insane. It's like something didn't work here. There was a disconnect. There was no sense of communal property. People don't fucking care. They don't give a shit. They don't want it to be nice. They just let it fall apart. And it's just... I mean, growing up my whole life, the, the the town I grew up in, it's not only a university town, it's the capital, it's a government town, it's double clean, it's super, super cool, just an amazing place. So being just amongst this just garbage, just garbage everywhere, just dirt. I mean, New York all over, don't kid yourself, all of Manhattan, all that shit, it's fucking, it's, it's pretty bad. And then you get into these bad neighborhoods, these ghetto neighborhoods of Brooklyn, and it's it's five times worse. <laughs> I don't deny it. Growing up in Canada made me soft in that case, in that sense. It's like, when you really boil down your life, what does it really come down to? You know, you have those big events, those big moments, but 99% of the time, all you're doing is just walking down the street to go someplace mundane, to maybe go get some groceries, whatever. 
And if that's not easy on your brain, if that doesn't make you happy to be alive, what the fuck do you do? You know, what the fuck? It just eats your goddamn brain. It's just like having a a Metroid on your brain. It just sucks your brain. It makes you hate everything. born and raised New Yorkers, they don't see it. So that's cool. That's fine. That's thank God for them that they, they don't. They don't react that way. It doesn't treat them that way. But I think if you grew up in one of these really bad neighborhoods, like Tracy Morgan did, you can only adapt so far. You know, you can only accept this to a point until you realize that this isn't right. That I deserve more than this. That My life shouldn't be like this day in and day out. This should not be the mental backdrop to all of my thoughts. This shouldn't be what's in my brain. I am a fucking human being on earth. This is my one life. I deserve better than this. I should not be here. But most people don't get out, you know, Tracy Morgan did, but most people don't. That's, it's, and it's, it's a lot easier to understand. I mean, I'm sure if you are a black kid who grew up in Bed-Stuy, you're like, shut the fuck up, white boy, shut your fucking face, you have no fucking idea what you're talking about. I know I had it easier, you know, I am softer, I was luckier. But I understand more than I used to, I understand more than when I used to watch movies. Like the liquor store, it was a nightmare. It was insane. This liquor store by her house was encased in bulletproof glass. And what you had to do was there was like a little hole you put your money in. You slide it down a passage. And the guy takes the money out of his side of the hole. Then puts the liquor in and slides it down the passage to you. All transparent, all bulletproof glass. Just nightmarish. Insane. And... Now that I've been there and I've spent a lot of time listening to this interview with Tracy Morgan, I just understand so much clearer than I used to. It really made it just gripping to me. I couldn't stop listening to this guy. It's just amazing how present it seemed in my head. So I'm going to take, this is most of the interview, not all of it. I don't like NPR. I don't like how they interview. I don't like this lady. So I'm going to leave some of this lady in because I have to, but but I'm going to take the parts that really stuck out to me, and that's what this episode's going to be about. I don't know, and I'm fucking sorry for everyone who grew up there. I'm sorry for everyone that will grow up there. I hope you get the fuck out. Don't stay. Don't. You're not. You're not the hero. You're not going to fucking fix all of this horse shit. You're not going to change the fucking world. You can't trust that something is going to come out of this. You're just going to be worn down by this fucked up place. Okay, let's talk about growing up. Um, So you grew up in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. Describe the neighborhood. Well, it was rough. It was bed-star, do or die, you know, it was rough. It was a 
deprivation. It was poverty. It was uh, ghetto USA. It was what it was. But there was love. There was a lot of love, you know. But then crack came along and guns came along and, you know, it, it became an epidemic in America. So we sit in our car and we wait for our turn. We'll be waiting your, your father fought in Vietnam and you say he fought for, for like four or five tours and he came home addicted to heroin and that kind of split up the family because your mother didn't want you around him when he was using. Of course using. not. Of yeah. course not. My so, mother gave him, My mother loved my father. My mother tried to help my father but when you're addicted to heroin that's a very powerful addiction and most people never survive it. And like many other young men that went over and served in Vietnam a lot of them came back junkies. I know, but that's how heroin and all of these things took place in the seventies. It was a big boom on that. It was it was young kids over there just trying to get through the night. When you were six or seven, and and you know your father was freshly home, and you were trying to get right. to know him, did you understand what it meant to have a habit? And here, here's what I'm even thinking. You know, no, like, I was six years old. I know, and kids kids are so afraid of needles. You know, of getting like six vaccinations old. and shots. And here your I father is. I know my is. daddy was sleepy all the time. Uh-huh. That's what I knew. But he right. was my daddy. Kids don't see fault like that. Kids' minds ain't even that developed. Yeah, I'm also wondering, like you write about how your father would would have night terrors from post-traumatic stress. Yeah, and that would make me cry because my daddy was scared and I knew that. And I was a baby, but I seen it. But you don't even know the half. There are people still, I know people going through this every day. My childhood, yeah, sure, it wasn't a happy ending. I lost my daddy. And at some point, I lost my mommy emotionally. But she had five kids. Yeah, we write about how you left your mother's home in Brooklyn to live in your father's home in the Bronx when you were in high school. I thought it was because I wanted to play football and she didn't want to let me. And now, but what I do you think, think it was bigger than that. Now that I look back on it, now I think that I ran because if I would have stayed, I might have became a statistic like some of my other friends. What I might have got caught up in the streets, mm-hmm. and I might not be sitting here talking to you. So I did what I thought was best for me, and I ran, and I went to my father, who put me in a high school with a football team, and said, "Run, Trey, have fun." It was a terrible situation. It was a really terrible situation. It wasn't my mother's fault. Something just went off in me. I wanted I wanted better for me. And I not only ran away, I came back a year later and got my little brother and my little sister. And took them with you to your father's house. Yeah, and the and he got custody. He got legal custody. Which, yeah, and which... that was really hard. That was the hardest mm-hmm. day of my life. And I heard my mother cry, and it just broke me down. And I, I think about it now. I never meant to hurt my mother. 
In the book, you describe how um, you and your mother never reconciled. One day we will. Maybe one day she'll pick up this book. I figure she Maybe would. Maybe she'll read it. <laughs> do, do, she'll do, read it. Do you intend part of it to be a wife saying to her, uh, let's well, talk? When you talk to someone, they can either argue with you and just shut you off and walk out the room. When you talk to somebody on the phone, they can hang up on you. But when you write them a letter, they have to read that letter. They just have to read that letter. Me, I forgive my mother and I moved on. That's for my moving on. That's for me. My mother had to forgive herself. I understand, mommy. That's all I'm saying is I understand. I understand what the position you was in and why you did what you did. I love my mother. My mother made sure her stubbornness, she made sure we was going to eat. She made sure we had Christmases. That was my mother. My father wasn't there for that. And by the time I really got to know him, I was still going through anger. Because I was still angry. I was like any other inner city child with a chip on his shoulder because his daddy and his mommy wasn't together. And I should say, when you went to live with your father, he wasn't using anymore, right? No, he had stopped maybe 10 years. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to But make, it was make too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was too late. He wasn't using then. My father was, uh, he was down like four flat tires at that time, but I was angry. He was always in my life. My father was always there. Taught me how to, took me fishing and all these things. But it's not like having daddy there. You write that um, when you were in high school and living with your father, your father sent you to two psychiatrists because you were so angry all the time. Me, I was. Did you understand then what was making you angry and is your take no, I didn't. on it now I different? I was, no, I was 16, 17 years old. I just knew I was mad. And I might have been mad at him. I might have been mad at him because when I went to school, I was around my peers. I made, I was the life of the party. I made them laugh and everything. But when I went home, it would just be like I was mad. Because now he's trying to tell me, and I felt like I had grew up already. By the time I was 11 years old, I was hanging out till 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Now I'm with you. Now you telling me I have to be in by 8 o'clock and I have to eat three square meals and I have to study? What? It's too late for that. I came home one day, and he was about 90 pounds. Oh. And he was sitting outside, and I don't know how he found the strength to climb down four flights of stairs. He had lost all his teeth. He was just about on his way out. And I looked at him. I said, Dad, why are you sitting out here? And he couldn't talk. He had lost that ability, and he just looked at me and mumbled, uh, I needed air. Take me upstairs, and I picked him up in my arms, and I carried my father upstairs. And then, as we was going through the door, he cried. He looked at me, and he said, "I said, what's wrong, Dad?" He said, "I remember when I carried you through the door when you was a baby." You take you took care of your father at the end. Yeah, I was there. Brought him food to the hospital. Let him yell at me because I knew he was afraid. When you face a death, you could be afraid. I don't know nobody, anybody that walked to the gas chamber and was all bold. That's only for TV. (laughs) 
when your father died of AIDS when you were in high school, you, you dropped out of high school and you needed money. So you say you started selling marijuana and then eventually started selling crack. Yeah. But um, So I'm wondering, did, in- did, did you take Al Pacino's advice from Scarface, don't get high on your own supply? No, I never did drugs. I, my, my, my drug of choice was beer, mm-hmm. was liquor. As far as narcotics, no. I would smoke weed and drink beer like any other. Like Michael Phelps do that. But I never did no narcotics. Never. My father had died from that, so I already knew better. You know, I'm a very smart person. I was able to see that. I was As a child, I was able to know that I wanted a better life. You say that it was helpful to you as a comic to sell crack because of all the characters that you met. What, what do you mean? Well, it wasn't helpful for me to sell crack, especially to my old community. It still bothers me today, but it's something that I did. It was survival. Now I'm living. Now I don't have to do any of that stuff. I'm a grown man now. But when I did, I wasn't good at it. <laughs> so I had my fledgling attempt at being a drug dealer. I had no fear. Mm-hmm. I was crazy. And when you don't have fear, you're crazy. I didn't have a healthy dose of fear. I was like everybody else doing it. I never thought I could get killed or somebody could kill me. And then friends started dying. Friends started going to jail. I know guys that are doing years in the hundreds. I know people that never made it out of our childhood. My best friend, who I used to sell crack with, got murdered one day. Murdered by somebody we went to junior high school with. And that was it for me. I started doing comedy. After that? Right after that. Because me and him used to be cooking the drugs up, and he would say to me, yo, Tracy, man, you should be doing comedy. You should take your ass to the Apollo. And I was like, nah, man. And then a week later, he was murdered. And that, for me, that was like my Vietnam. my survival guilt when I started to achieve success, why I made it out and some guys didn't. You, you describe when you got your first check from Saturday Night Live, you know, you said you were still living in the ghetto, and mm-hmm. uh, after you got the check, you had enough money to move the family, yeah. and you moved in the middle of the night. I felt like Noah. Felt like Noah, who had built his ark. And the first thing I wanted to do was get my family to higher grounds because I knew the floods was going to come. What were the floods? More gunfire, more violence. And I'm on TV now, too. Where I come from, people see you on TV, they think you stashed a million dollars in your house. And you don't want anybody knowing when you're leaving. You don't want nobody looking at your stuff as you put it in the truck. You don't want anyone following you to your new pad where you best your head. And that, that was it. I just wanted a fresh start with my family. And I wanted to leave my past in my past. So we quietly moved. That was an adjustment because 
I wanted to know, I had, I had where I came from and where I was at, I could compare it. Like, why is there garbage on the streets where I come from? This is the, I am the new black. Why is there garbage on the streets where I come from and where I'm living now, there's no garbage. So that means we have to keep our own clean. We can't blame nobody. Can't use nobody as a crutch. You have to take care of your own. Period. many different ways to many different people I'm gonna give you what you give me I'm gonna keep it just as real as you keep it with with me this is not gonna be 70 30 this is gonna be 50 50 straight down the middle I'm funny I still turn the funny on the funny bus is still sitting downstairs yeah, the funny bus. I got a whole truckload of funny downstairs. see myself as angry, although other people see that. I just see myself as a short, dumpy guy with bad feet, and I'm passionate. Okay. <laughs> I'm a grown man now. I'm doing well off. All right. I really don't have anything, and my kids are fine, you know? My ex-wife is fine. Good, so. good. But when I speak, I speak passionately. I do. It's not anger. I mean, that, that little 17-year-old boy, he's, he's grown up. He's a man now. And when I was angry, when I was younger, I was in a cocoon. Now I'm a beautiful black butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end with a few words from my past. This is me and my ex-girlfriend standing in the parking lot of a grocery store in Bushwick, Brooklyn in 2008. You're on okay, the I got a question for you. It's just coming up in my mind now. And I just have to find, no. With all the things that we have seen and done today, all the strange little things that have happened, like we went to beautiful gardens, we had an awesome brunch, we went to dog parks, we saw a car that was on fire. Oh, we I saw, know where this is going. I mean, how can you hate on New York? Did you see, as we walked down that very street with the tattoo boobed man, the like pile of explosion of garbage that was just next to a telephone booth that probably doesn't work? Yeah. I know, okay, yes, bad with good, bad with good, I know. It's awful, it's awful that there's so much trash and everything everywhere. Right. But like, where else are you going to see such a fucking crazy mix of shit? I took the entry in from the ocean
It is very expensive and very just demoralizing. It's like, what's that line from 1984? If you want to know what the future's like, just imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. That's what this fucking city is like to me. It's just no hope for the future. I can't imagine what it was like 20 years ago when people talk about the old New York. Like, when the world becomes overpopulated, I hope to fuck this is not where it's all going. They've done a bad job here. So it just, it's not worth it to me. The balance is not there. The, the quality of life is just not here. This is my life, man, my life. I'm not gonna waste my whole life living in a shithole like this. It's insanity. long because you say that and I'm like well what is in a shithole but there probably are places that are in a shithole huh there are a lot of people especially in my neighborhood that just look beat down that just look like like this chick she's living her life like it's golden but I mean the chick that walked right before she came here that she just looks ground down by life in general It's okay. Uh-oh, uh-oh. 